Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 225. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I am so excited to introduce a very special guest, Moses Ludell. Moses, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm ready for the ride. All right. Great to have you here. Moses Ludell launched 4WD Mechanics Magazine online in 2010 with a focus on high-definition technical how-to video, off-road performance, power sport, and motorized outdoor lifestyles. He's the author of the best-selling Jeep's Owner's Bible and six additional Bentley Publishers titles. His career as a writer, photojournalist, and videographer has spanned over three decades. He's written more than 3,400 feature-length magazine and newspaper articles, technical columns, and more than 20,000, yes, 20,000 published photo credits in books, magazines, and newspapers. And he's written for almost all of the best-known magazines in the United States, the UK, and Japan. Moses, I've told our listeners just a wee bit about you would you take a moment and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Well, I came out of a successful corporate role to pursue automotive writing and photojournalism full-time. When that started, I had a conversation with the managing editor at Argus Publishers, and Stephanie sensed my commitment and shared, frankly, that several of her friends were disappointed with freelancing. They spent more time chasing their buyout checks than actually writing. I respected Stephanie's observations, but I plowed on anyway as a tech feature writer and columnist for off-road and popular hot-rodding magazines. Uh, my freelance assignments grew. I never turned down an assignment. By 1989, I was grossing $88,000 a year from freelance writing at $100 per published page. My features averaged 2,400 words, and a package included all of the artwork, the travel, the photography, trips to the photo labs, and the business chores that you'd associate with being a freelancer. I was better paid than any of my editors, but it did take a disciplined and organized effort of 80 to 100 hours a week to meet the deadline. The challenges with freelancing are, of course, vast, and we'll, we'll talk more about that as we move along. But before I get into one of my first questions here, I'd love to hear a little bit about 
fourwheeldrivemechanicsmagazine.com, this website that you've created. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about that before we get too much into the other questions? I could see the trending in that the Internet was a popular medium. I came out of a print media background and had success as a book author. I saw a real need for accurate technical information. There was a great deal of anecdotal information exchange online, a lot of it without any kind of credibility, and felt that the professionalism that I could bring to a magazine online would be valuable. I also recognized the fact that journalism, as I knew it historically, had shifted to audiovisual, and there's a footnote that goes with that. I can remember instructing in the classroom in the day when audiovisual would put students and trainees to sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks to YouTube, we're in a different landscape now, and audiovisual is a highly impactful, readily understood medium for delivering technical how-to and step-by-step information. Absolutely. It's uh, amazing what you can figure out how to do. I've done some things with my vehicles just by going to YouTube. I've fixed some stuff around the house here. It's just incredible. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Moses, take the wheel. When I think of a a success quote, I think of my favorite author, Jack London, and his remark that life is not a matter of holding good cards, but sometimes playing a poor hand well. I love it. How have you incorporated Jack's quote into your life and your career? Well, there are a variety of ways that I've done that. I would say that just the recognition that you have a commitment, as I mentioned, the story with Argus Publications and Stephanie's observations, the fact that many would be discouraged by the challenges of freelance writing and so on. I wanted to be a freelance writer. It was an objective. I wanted to write professionally. I wanted to professionalize my photography skills. Really, it's about commitment. And quite often, there, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It may take quite a while before you're compensated fairly or adequately. You may be leaving a career where you're paid handsomely, actually had a much better opportunity if material ends were the the objective. So it really comes down to the passion side of it, and at the same time being a realist about what will it take to be successful, and how can you value your time. Oh, it's great. I love it. And that's so much of what Cars is about, is to follow your passion and that stick-to-itiveness, if you will, tenacity, perseverance is so key. But uh, Playing the cards well, even if they're not the greatest hand, is a a great analogy to what so many of us are trying to do as entrepreneurs in the automotive field. Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars? I'd love to know about that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy. I've always had a fascination with automobiles, trucks, and trains. By the time I was in kindergarten, everything mechanical or on wheels caught my attention. When I was 11, one of my older sisters married, and her husband, Ray, was a flathead Ford buff. He had a chopped 32 Ford three-window coupe project, which really got my attention. I got a used bug go-kart for my 13th birthday, and the cart had a bent front axle. Ray's friends, Mike and Paul, Starjack, replaced the chrome-molly axle tube using an oxyacetylene welding technique. When I think back, Paul's work actually looked like precision TIG. The Starjacks had early Ford V8 Roadsters and Phaetons. In fact, they had a 32 Roadster that earned trophies at the L.A. Roadster Show. This was all the inspiration I needed. My brother-in-law, Ray, found a 33 Ford two-door at a wrecking yard, and he earmarked it for my first car project. Unfortunately, the car's condition was bleak, and it wound up a parts donor for a Starjack Phaeton. 
The real catalyst for my lifetime passion around mechanics has its roots in Nevada's scooter license law. In 1963, at the age of 14, I was old enough for that license, and I was working a summer job at the Gardnerville Hancock gas station. A local kid had a 55 Sears Allstate Cushman four-horsepower scooter, and he putted into the station with blue smoke pouring out the exhaust pipe and offered to sell me the scooter. I made a buck an hour at this summer job. The brush-painted Hulk had a not-so-subtle engine knock, and I offered Ben that day's earnings, which were a whopping $8. <laughs> he accepted and suggested that I remove the crankcase plate and install a piece of leather belt in place of the rod insert bearing. Being 14 and naive, I weighed that suggestion and had my father ride the scooter home. That evening, I was really anxious to ride the Cushman and fired it up, headed down a lonely country lane alongside a friend's shiny new Honda Trail 55, I remember there were mosquitoes swarming, and it was just a remarkable experience for a few minutes. And then I heard the loud metallic snap of a connecting rod letting go. Later found out that the rod had simultaneously snapped the camshaft in half. Fortunately, that step-through frame model had a centrifugal clutch, so the rear wheel didn't lock up when the engine seized. I was undaunted and healthy enough to push the scooter home and had the engine apart in less than probably two hours. <laughs> the engine was a lost cause. So I poured over the shop manual that came with the machine, and being academically bent, soon discovered uh, that many of the four-horsepower Husky engine parts interchanged with the eight-horsepower Super Eagle engine. Despite Nevada's scooter license restriction of six-and-a-half horsepower and 35 miles per hour, I took my month's earnings and went over the hill to Alder's dealership in Sacramento and picked up a Super Eagle short walk. Cool. I essentially built a sleeper, eight horsepower, <laughs> with a smaller combustion chamber of the four horsepower cylinder head boosted the compression, so the engine's output was likely more like nine horsepower at sea level. Carson Valley was 4,700 feet, so it probably had less horsepower at that elevation. To my parents' amazement, my first four-stroke short block project was a success. The engine actually started and ran with just some ignition tuning and minor carburetor adjustments. Ben had given me his tattered oil-stained Cushman shop manual, and that manual actually set the stage for a lifetime of by-the-book automotive and motorcycle work that followed. Those Cushman scooter-riding days also led to my passion for British motorcycles, BMW bikes, and dirt motorcycling. Sounds fantastic. I've had many guests on the shows here that love motorcycles and started their automotive passion on a, on a mini bike or a scooter or a small bike or something like that. So it sounds like that's where yours came from. I'd love to take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you've faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this has to do with how you overcame it and what did you learn from that experience? That's a good one. Each one of us has challenges in life. What matters is how we respond to those challenges. If there is such a thing as a failure... Make a point of failing forward. I'd go back to Stephanie's comments early in my full-time writing career. Her question was, can you really make a living as a freelance writer? In my case, I've always had stamina and a willingness to work hard. At 14, I gleefully worked 60 hours a week at the Hancock station to buy the Cushman short engine. Rather than dwelling on the time invested in each magazine assignment or how long a photo shoot took or the myriad time drains of simply operating your own business, I focused on meeting the deadlines for each assignment. Had I contrasted my work days and nights to the corporate job I left, or compared the uncertainty of freelance assignments to my high school friends who were already halfway through their public sector job careers, I may have taken Stephanie's comments to heart. Instead, I adopted the philosophy, work until the work is done. The combination of my energy, my focus, immediate family support helped me persevere. 
and between 1987 and 1989, despite a ridiculous work pace, often 90 to 100 hours a week, my income increased steadily. I couldn't change the pay rate, though I did get top per page fees for the era. All I could do was hone my craft and work smarter, become more proficient, and maintain a constructive outlook. By 1989, my technical writing bylines and photo credits appeared in every one of the artists, McMullen, McMullen Yee, and Dobbs Publications. I even attracted two unsolicited book offers, one from Mitchell Manuals, the other from Robert Bentley Publishers. I pursued the Bentley offer and drafted a Jeep book proposal. This became the Jeep Owner's Bible. I had actually first published in 1983, and after years of weathering uncertainty while advancing my technical expertise, writing, and photography skills, I was ready. Discipline and the ability to research launched my Bentley book career. Would you say that um, when we talk about challenges and failures, if you will, the key there was just perseverance? Uh, Obviously, you worked very hard to be successful, to just that kept on going mentality that you had? Yeah, I think one of the things that helps a lot, and what we talk about a lot, especially in this context, is if you have a passion for something, you need to stick with it. You don't plunge blindly, but at the same time, it takes a lot of energy to make anything work, whether you're a neurosurgeon and go to years of school and whatever. It takes a concerted amount of effort to hone your skills. The success is also tied, though, to how practical and how much of a finger you might have on the pulse with regard to the use value of what you're doing. Perfect, absolutely. Well, speaking about that, Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those career aha moments. And it's one of those times, as I say, when the headlights came on and illuminated your way for a new idea or a direction that you had. And tell us the steps that you took to turn your aha moment into your success. I would go back to the Bentley Publishers projects, which were speculative royalty income, required confidence in my subject and the potential to reach, reach out with my work. Mm-hmm. I was still freelance magazine writing prolifically with a readership around $2 million each month. I was responsible for Q&A columns in a variety of magazines. Again, my fingers were on the pulse, and I knew what readers needed in the way of technical information. My overall aim was to help the reader think like a professional mechanic, which I'd been doing as far back as 1968 in my role as a light and medium-duty truck fleet mechanic. Bentley Publisher's offices are four blocks from Harvard Square at Cambridge, and the company's noteworthy titles had been British car manuals. I grew up in Nevada's rural cattle country and had a high school graduating class of 49 students. All red-blooded males were on the football team. I hunted and fished. I'd worked at construction and operated heavy equipment before earning my Dean's List degree in sociology pre-law from the University of Oregon. I was a master tech on American iron, cars, trucks, and 4x4s. Bentley had had no experience with any of those types of vehicles. Not surprisingly, the early Bentley conversations about the book's content were strained. I stood ground and had the backup of a great editor, John Kittredge. John had confidence in my choices, and he let me have the reins. I took that first book where I wanted, and Bentley was able to secure an endorsement part number from Mopar Performance, the first third-party book to do so in Chrysler's history. This book, first released in 1992, also earned bestseller status with three editions to date. The aha moment was realizing my close relationship with readers, the result of my magazine technical writing and Q&A columns. To be successful with any product, 
you need to identify the end user's need. Boy, isn't that the truth? So much of people's ideas of starting their own businesses has to do with, well, what is your listener, what is your reader, what is your buyer need? What makes them happy? And it sounds like you discovered that. And congratulations, that's fantastic. How about proudest business or career moments? I would assume you've had many, but is there one in particular that stands out you'd share with me? Well, my wife helps keep me in line around the word proud. But uh, <laughs> I would book and magazine visibility led to considerable consulting work in the 90s and into the 2000s. I led journalists on four-wheel drive truck and SUV new vehicle launches for GM, uh, Mercedes-Benz, Subaru, and others. I hosted the Camp Chief Mopar workshops each summer. Much of this would be considered prestigious, especially the launch of the ML320 or the new Toyota Sequoia. On the Sequoia assignment, I worked with PBS Motor Week's John Davis. We were co-hosting the point-of-sale videos for the launch of the Sequoia and other Toyota truck and SUV models. My proudest moment, though, was getting two nearly stock GeoTracker two-door 4x4s over the Rubicon Trail in the Sierra Range. This publicity stunt and groundbreaking challenge, the first ever Rubicon Trail venture for Chevrolet Geo, turned out to be a 46-hour physical marathon. I'd been running this notorious trail since the summer of 1967, and a typical short wheelbase Jeep 4x4 truck could make the trip in 8 to 12 easy hours. Aside from my consulting fees, the tracker adventure was on a shoestring budget and I drove both of the vehicles through some of the roughest stretches. Steve Kramer from Cal Mini Products and I spent most of the time high lift jacking, winching, and making emergency trail repairs, like when the front CV joints blew out at 10 o'clock at night. Yet we made it. Chevrolet Geo got bragging rights in a national ad campaign from the photos. I did features for Chevy Truck and Geo Times magazines. We had accomplished what many considered an impossible task. I've always liked the physical challenge and came off the trail at Lake Tahoe with only a few hours sleep. I drove home to Yarrington, Nevada. I slept two hours. I drove to the Reno Airport and flew to my next Chevrolet Media event assignment at New Jersey. <laughs> Sounds like an adventure for sure. Oh, my goodness. How about your first really special car? It doesn't have to be your first car, but the car that was really special to you. Could you share a memory you had with that vehicle? Oh, boy. I have many. The Gardnerville Hancock Station job at 14 had me popping the hoods of domestic muscle cars. There were two cars I remember distinctly, a 57 Ford F-Bird with a McCullough supercharger and a Studebaker Lark Daytona with a Paxson supercharged Devani 289 V8 and a 4-speed. That was the ultimate factory sleeper. The baby bird had been scorching across I-80 without a speed limit on bias ply tires, which today we think was rather challenging. The Lark had an aluminum foil insulation lining the engine bay. There were Crossram Mopart 413s, 6-pack 406 Fords, dual-quad 409 Chevys, and 421 Pontiacs, Rochester fuel-injected Corvette 283s and 327s. All of those engines were naturally aspirated pushrod V8s. All achieved one horsepower or more per cubic inch displacement. Coming of age during the muscle car era, of course, I caught the 55 to 57 Chevy bug, and my entry into that mark was a $100 55 Chevy Model 152 door. It was stone stock, but not for long. I enjoyed the car and its breakthrough engineering, including the 265 V8 that quickly replaced the original 235 inline six. Our rural Nevada community boasted a bevy, if you will, of radical factory iron. During high school, I worked after school in summers at the Minden Chevron and pumped 110 octane heavily leaded custom supreme gasoline 
into the hot Chevelles, the 427 Camera, Ford Fairlanes, the GTOs, 442s, Falcon Sprints, Corvettes, Hemi-powered Mopars. Nevada's basic speed law was Mecca. Every hot streetcar in the far west wanted to get on the Nevada highway. Our high school parking lot looked like the set for American Graffiti. At the station, we looped and tuned these cars, and I could revel in all of this without investing a dime. When my father traded a Country Squire station wagon on a 67 Buick GS400 coupe, we even had a muscle car in the home garage. For local four-wheelers, there were also many hot Jeep 4x4s and Land Cruiser FJ40s with Chevrolet and small block Ford V8 slots. <laughs> Sounds very cool. How about uh, seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle that you've owned that you let go that you wish you could have back? I restored several vehicles that would be keepers today. The 55 Chevy, of course but also my 55 Ford F100 pickup and a 1950 Jeep CJ3A. I built three project vehicles for Off-Road Magazine. Two were Land Cruiser FJ40s with small block Chevy Stroker 383 V8s. One of the cruisers, the heavily modified 78 model, featured uh, in my Toyota truck and Land Cruiser Owner's Bible, made the SEMA show. The CJ5 Jeep 4x4 projects could also make the keeper list. Well, we all have those cars we wish we hadn't let go. Sounds like you have more than one. So sorry to bring that up, but uh, I always have to ask everybody that question. Is there a current project you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up? From 2005 to 2009, we opened our shop doors to select mechanical restoration projects on vintage and classic cars. And I focused on transmission, axle, engine, and steering gear work. I specialized in post-war iron automatic transmissions and exotic domestic power steering systems. Did a large volume of work until the recession. While I like physical challenges in juggling full-size cars and uh, engines, Packard straight eights with Ultramatics attached or a Cobra Jet 428 FE Ford V8 from a Shelby Mustang is just plain heavy lifting. I did some unit bench building of vintage transmissions after 2009, started the magazine in February 2010. The magazine took off, and when readers and viewers more recently expressed an interest in power sports coverage, I was happy to accommodate and introduce my passion for desert enduro motorcycles. I picked up an iconic Honda XR650R, the same model that Johnny Campbell and Andy Greider, Steve Hankefeld and Mouse McCoy immortalized in the movie Dust to Glory. The bike needed restorative work, and I performed some mild power upgrades, all of it caught on HD video how-to. This in-depth technical series has been quite popular with the magazine's video audience, and motorcycle work is much more manageable. It sounds like it. Now, this next question can be very introspective. If you were a car, Moses, what kind of car would you be and why? High performance runs through Motorhead's blood. I've driven, tested, performance-tuned, and restored a variety of very fast cars. I tested the original C4 Corvette ZR1 for Corvette Fever when the vehicle launched and drove these cars with Watkins Glen. One bad event in particular, it happened to rain and the wipers lifted off the windshield at 116 miles per hour. Apparently that was General Motors' built-in speed limiter. <laughs> the technology for that generation was impressive and I'm a motorhead and technology buff. That said, there are some aesthetic cues that raise my pulse. Uh, my early childhood memories must have influenced me here. My grandparents had a 1947 Packard Clipper and a 53 model as well. There was a distinct family pension for Packards and Buicks. I've done textbook rebuilds of Ultramatic and Dynaflow transmissions and straight-eight engines. Frankly, I'd likely be a post-war Packard or Buick for their elegant, flowing style and high-torque engines. 
1948 to 50 Packard Standard 8 club sedan with overdrive transmission might work, or maybe a 53 Buick Skylark convertible with a nail head V8. Then again, I'm also a Pontiac guy, thanks to Smokey Eunuch and Mickey Thompson. A 57 Bonneville with Rochester fuel injection would be a statement. Well, those are a lot of choices. <laughs> That's a lot of different kinds of cars, but I think I understand where you're going with the with the concept of the question. Up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, here's a little something from our sponsor. Carpe Viem. Seize the road. It's the motto at carpegear.com, where you'll find the Little Red Racing Car, an award-winning book written and illustrated by passionate car guy Dwight Knowlton. It's a spectacular way to introduce children to the love of cars. It's an international award winner, and Yahoo Autos calls it the best kid's book ever. Plus, it's printed in the USA. I may be an adult, but this kid loves the Little Red Racing Car. Dwight is finishing a second book in collaboration with Sir Sterling Moss about the story of his record-breaking win of the 1955 Mille Miglia. Check out Dwight's Carpe Diem brand where you can find his books, shirts, and more that embrace his seize-the-road philosophy. Enjoy Carpe Diem at carpegear.com and be sure to sign up for his newsletter while you're there. That's carpegear.com, C-A-R-P-E, gear.com. All right, Moses, we're back and we're entering the last lap. And this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you give ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Let's go. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Oh, boy, this one. It's all just iron and there's a butt for every seat. <laughs> for me, this car business euphemism emphasizes the sober reality of mechanics as opposed to aesthetics and nostalgia. When I tuned to C1 Corvette small block on my six telescope analyzer, all I saw was a 283 with 283 horsepower and a dual point distributor with matching dwell angles on the point. A client once commented that most hobby car owners would be content to sit in the car and listen to the radio. Nostalgia cues are visceral. That's why classic car auctions are so unpredictable. In my master mechanic mode, however, I'm practical and pragmatic. When you've spun wrenches professionally for 47 years, you find the car business adage is very fitting. <laughs> Absolutely. Would you share one of your personal habits with us that you believe has contributed to your success? Simple. A strong work ethic and willingness to see projects through. Deadline writing at the volume I did simply reinforced that habit. Absolutely. Do you have a resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? I know there are lots and lots of them out there, but one in particular you think the Car Show listeners would really enjoy? When I perform vintage car mechanical restoration work, quality machine shops and NOS suppliers became vital resources for that business. Parts inventories for collectible cars have diminished dramatically, and it's necessary to have resources that are well-connected. Some that work for my particular work were FATSCO, Northwest Transmission Parts, Concord Parts, L.A. Sleeve, Eggy Machine, and Max Merritt. And how about a book? Is there one book in particular, again, a difficult question, but one book in particular you think the Cars Out listeners should definitely read? This is a tough call for me. For my academic side, Leon Mandel's book, Driven, is a worthwhile read. Bentley Publishers has a fine stable of biographical books that provide insights into the automobile culture. I'm academic, and I like history in any form. At the age of 14, I waded through Alan Nevin's weighty 688-page work, Ford, The Times, The Man, The Company. I've read autobiographies by many automotive notables. 
Then there's my resource library for technical work and writing that's behind me in my office. Four tall bookcases lined with factory workshop manuals. Motors, Chilton and Mitchell manuals, some dating back to the 1920s. Parts catalogs for juggling parts and parts interchange numbers. I have volumes of precision, high-performance tuning specifications, especially from the muscle car era. I have Harley-Davidson workshop manuals and reprints from the 1920s through the Evolution era. This is what it takes to be an automotive or motorcycle author. Listeners, you can find links to all these resources at carsyad.com slash Moses Ludell. And Moses' last name is spelled L-U-D-E-L. Moses, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, but don't worry about the cost because today I'm going to buy you whatever you'd like, what would that vehicle be and why? Okay, you know, this is a collectible car, and I'd have to focus on a mark. For advanced period technology and performance, a V16 Cadillac would be my likely choice. A 1937 Series 90 with a tasteful body style would be helpful. Though many collectors want to open their garage to admire a beautiful car sitting there or even take it for a run for others to see, I'd likely spend my time blueprint tuning and syncing the twin ignition distributors or rebuilding the tire transmission to factory blueprint standards. A master mechanic at heart, every drive would be a road test. The technology, engineering, service needs, and blueprint restoration would be the lure for me. Great car. Wonderful car. What's amazing about those vehicles, the ones, the few I've seen at car shows, is you can stand next to them, you almost don't even hear them running. The engines are so smooth. It's just fantastic. Moses, you've taken me on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yow listeners and with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Cadillac V16? My advice would be find what really stirs your automotive passion. Are you drawn to the thrill of fresh metal work, paint, and finish detailing? Do you prefer blueprinting an engine build or restoring mechanical parts to function as new? Find your niche. Then study everything available on the subject. Respect the design intent and engineering of machinery. It's just one example. I studied metallurgy and heat treating in order to restore obsolete manual transmission gear teeth. Become so proficient that you could instruct the subject. Instructing can be the ultimate gift that you offer. I presented to automotive corporate executives. I earned worthy day rates as a consultant. My guest lecturer on Jeep at the Lars Anderson Auto Museum at Brookline, Massachusetts, was the first on the subject in the museum's history. I was also the video host for Mopar's Jeep 101 tour, and I taught four-wheel drive clinics on behalf of the Tread Lightly program. Yet the best and most meaningful feedback I received in my career was during the hiatus I took from the automotive industry. Twice in my career years, I sidestepped the fast track and taught. Today, I thank my students from that 1999 to 2004 rite of passage stint for making me a better, more effective instructor. Classroom teaching, hands-on instructing of automotive diesel technology and welding. Eventually, I drafted automotive technology curriculum. Each made me more effective. If you want to be a mechanic or modern vernacular technician, be literate willing to understand engineering principles. If you want to weld, study metallurgy, too. If you fancy yourself an artist, do body and sheet metal work, but understand the evolution and history of the art form. Above all, make sure your passion is sustainable. As for finding my work, I'm a book author, online publisher, videographer, producer, and forum administrator. I have a portfolio website, 
at www.mosesludell.net, and I'm available for consulting work, including professional workshops and corporate training and advisory needs. For WD Mechanics Magazine, an HD video network is a 24-7 resource for articles and HD videos. The magazine is at www.wdmechanix.com. The forums are accessible at http colon forward slash forward slash forums dot wdmechanics.com. You don't have to log in as a guest. As learning methodology has shifted to audiovisual, my emphasis is now videography. Training videos once put students and technicians to sleep, but in the era of YouTube and Vimeo, how-to, step-by-step videos have become strategic training tools. With my photojournalism background, I adapted readily to real-time, run-and-gun type video documentary work, which also works for corporate profiles and in-depth technical training videos. True to form, I've generated over 400 videos in the last five years and continue to refine and expand my available content. Join me at 4WD Mechanics Magazine. Listeners, again, you can find links to everything Moses has shared at carsyad.com. Just put Moses into the search box. His show notes page will pop up with all these links. Thank you, Moses, for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. I really enjoyed our interview. Thanks much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.